Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of Wilderness Matters where we discuss the skills, science, and gear necessary to enjoy the outdoors safely and responsibly. I'm your host Joe, the creator of Balefire Doors on YouTube. Today I want to establish why being prepared is so important for outdoors enthusiasts and how it serves as the backbone for the rest of our discussions. If you don't have preparedness down, you probably should not be in the outdoors because you can be at a high risk of injury or worse and you're not going to have fun if you aren't properly prepared. So it's very important to understand this concept before we dig into anything else. Before we get into it, I just want to say that the best way to support the show is to leave us a review on places like iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, and to follow us over on Instagram and YouTube at Balefire Outdoors. Links will be in the show notes. Now let's get into it. We need to understand what we mean to be prepared. What is it to be prepared? When a lot of people think of preparedness, they think of doomsday preppers, you know, thinking about major, wide-scale, big-picture disasters, and that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the outdoors. What we're talking about in the outdoors, to be prepared means that you can go do what you plan to do and get home safely, whether it's just walking a trail for an hour, it's going on a day hike, going on an overnighter, or maybe a week-long hunting trip. You need to be able to do that and get home safely. And part of that is, yes, expecting the worst. The first thing people go to is the what-ifs. And it is reasonable to an extent to think about the what-ifs. What if I get stung by a bee? Do I have my EpiPen? What if I roll my ankle? Do I have what I need to take care of that? What if my pack falls into the water? Is everything going to be sealed so it doesn't get wet? The basic what-ifs are important, but if you're going to be doing a trail hike through you know, a major metropolitan area, say you're going through Central Park in New York City, you don't need to bring enough gear to survive for a week. That's just unreasonable. But at the same time, if you're going out on a week-long hunting excursion, you don't want to just bring what you need for that week-long hunting excursion, you might need to be out there longer if bad weather sets in or you get injured because you're probably going to be way out there if you're going to be out that long. So you need to make sure that you're bringing what's expected and reasonable for that situation. For most people, most outdoors folks, they're car campers, they're trail hikers. You know, they're only people that are going to be out for a day, maybe overnight. That's the majority of outdoorsmen. So this is me addressing you guys. This isn't me addressing the super experienced long-term way out there in the boonies folks. So for the average person going into the outdoors, I think the reasonable level of kit preparedness is going to be the 72-hour scenario. If weather gets bad, if you get injured, do you have what you need to be out there for 72 hours and get home safely? 72-hour kit, it can be a lot of gear if you're just walking through a trail and you can see houses on both sides of you. You don't need that. But if you're going to be actually in the wilderness, even if it's just a short trail, you never know what might happen. So I think a 72-hour hour kit is big enough, but not so big that it's going to really overwhelm you and ruin your fun. I think it's that good sweet spot of prepared but not too little. So for the average person, plan on a 72-hour kit, or at the very least, very least, a 48-hour kit. Even if you overnight, you know, you might have something happen where it's going to take you more than a couple hours to walk out the next day. So 72 hours is a sweet spot for me. Now, with that 72-hour kit, we need to talk about what I believe are the five most important skills. 
and these are, first of all, situational awareness. Situational awareness can help you avoid the vast majority of issues in the outdoors. Use all of your senses. Watch where you're going. Occasionally stop and look around you. Listen to what's going on around you. Smell the air. Do you smell smoke? What does the smoke smell like? Where is it coming from? You need to use all of your senses when you're outdoors because say you're in somewhere like Northern California or your place where wildfires are common, you're going to smell and hear that long before you see it. If you see a forest fire, chances are you're already too late. You're way too close. So you need to be using all of your senses. Same things for wildlife. Look for bears. Listen for bears. Make your presence known. Wear a bear bell. You need to be aware of everything that's going on around you. So many people get hurt in the outdoors every year because they're not situationally aware. They're not looking and listening and smelling the, the area around them. They, you need to be paying attention. It can avoid needing the rest of these skills in many situations. Now, the next situation is going to be your first aid. First aid is the most critical skill when we come to things and it's often the least prioritized people always go in the opposite order they go well i need food and then i need water and shelter and then i can just throw in a prepackaged first aid kit no you can die from a serious hemorrhage in seconds to minutes first aid is critically important so important for outdoorsmen that you can get a specialized first aid cord called wilderness first aid it's essentially a modified version of the advanced first aid course specifically tailored to outdoor situations if you plan on being an outdoors professional you will need to get this certification if you're doing things amateurly you're just an everyday outdoors person i still highly recommend you get this and you keep it maintained because they're very important skills and the certification can be really good on a resume even if you don't work in the outdoors industry Again, it is a modified version of advanced first aid, so it's still pretty impressive. Now, with first aid, you want to make sure that you're not just getting the skills, but you get the proper equipment and you match the equipment to your skills. Don't carry something you don't know how to use. It's dead weight and certain things like innovation equipment. You can really, really hurt someone if you aren't trained on how to clear airways. You can kill someone if you don't know how to use a decompression needle for the chest. Don't carry an IFAC if you don't know how to carry an IFAC. If you don't even know what an IFAC is, then you definitely should not be carrying it. At the very least, you want your first aid kit tailored to sprains, bites and stings, breakages, and hemorrhaging. That is a good base level kit. And then as you get the skills to do more advanced things like innovation, then you can learn and bring that equipment in. When you learn how to use a decompression needle, you can bring that in. Don't put anything in your kit you don't know how to use. You can severely hurt someone or even kill them with the misuse of first aid equipment. Another thing is you want to make sure that everything is up to date. Medications expire and denature in extreme heat and cold. You want to make sure that it's all perfectly sealed. If the seal's broken, it's no longer sterile. Throw it out. Certain things like quick clot, you order them online and you get them and they're going to expire within a year. Uh, so make sure that you're sourcing your components from reputable places and that you're getting the full shelf life out of what you're buying. Uh, first aid is so important. You want to spend a lot of money on this. You want to make sure it's the right stuff. I highly recommend building your own kit from scratch. It's going to be cheaper than just prepackaged stuff you're going to buy that's an all-in-one kit. You're going to be grossly overpaying for a whole bunch of band-aids instead of actual solid equipment. Now after first aid, the thing that can kill you in seconds to minutes 
is the thing that can kill you in hours, and that's exposure. Extreme heat and extreme cold kill far more people every year than hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis. Exposure is a big killer, so you want to be able to handle exposure. So I call this skill obtaining warmth. You need to be able to build fires, and you need to be able to build shelters. And the reason why I'm combining these two skills under the warmth category is a lot of people forget why we build fires. They want to do those cool Instagram pictures, those YouTube videos, where they're doing flint and steel or ferro rods or bow drills. And they do it because that's just what everyone does in the outdoors community, but they forget why they're doing it. You need to be able to use that fire for warmth. You need to be able to use it for cooking, just Making a small little tinder bundle, lighting tinder bundle, and calling that all right is not good enough. You need to be able to fully build a fire, maintain that fire, have the proper size fire for cooking, the proper size fire for warmth, and keeping yourself alive in cold conditions. You need more than just those cool Instagram pictures and those little YouTube tutorial snippets. You need to go beyond that. With shelter, you need to know how to build shelters that are relevant to your area. Building a spruce bough shelter doesn't mean jack if you don't have spruce around you. You need to know how to build the shelters that are relevant to the foliage and materials in your area. You need to be able to bring at least some form of shelter with you, even if it's just a poncho, that's still something. You need to bring something with you. Don't just rely on being able to use natural materials because sometimes you might not be able to find them. You might be too injured or too weak or too sick to make a shelter. So don't just rely on being able to do that stuff. Bring something with you for the love of goodness. Please do that. Too many people go in the woods every year just watching YouTube videos and think they can just build all these shelters. They can just magically start a fire by snapping their fingers. They get out there, something happens, and then they get stranded. They have to call search and rescue best of times, or they disappear because what really happened, they probably died and their body was never recovered. It happens every year in every country. There's always people that go out in the woods, do stupid stuff, aren't properly prepared, don't know how to do fire and shelter, don't bring good fire starting materials and shelter materials and get unnecessarily hurt or worse. Please don't be that person. Don't get cocky with your YouTube knowledge. Know how to build a true fire. Keep maintaining that fire and know how to bring and build a shelter and maintain that shelter. Next up after exposure is water procurement. First aid, hemorrhaging can kill you in seconds to minutes. Warmth, exposure can kill you in hours. And with water, it can kill you in days, especially since the average American, where I'm from, is dehydrated to begin with. So the typical two to three days might not even be relevant for you. It could be sooner than that, depending on how dehydrated you were going into the outdoors. So part of water procurement is just making sure when you go in the outdoors, you're properly hydrated before you even hit the trail. You should be hydrating every single day in your regular life anyways, but especially if you're going to be in the outdoors where you're going to be expending energy, sweating, you need to make sure that you're properly hydrated before you ever hit the trail. And then when it comes to being on the trail, know the water sources you're going to be near. Have proper filtration and purification methods. There is a difference between filtering water and purifying water. You need to understand that if you filter water out with a bandana, that doesn't make it safe to drink. You still have to boil it. You still have to use chemical tabs. Know the difference between organic pollutants and bacterials and viral things and non-biotic things, things like heavy metals, oil, chemical pollution, things like that. You need to know and be able to treat what's relevant for your area. If you're planning on doing an outdoorsman thing, 
but all the waterways are ones that border highways and things like that. You're going to have a lot of chemical pollution. And unfortunately, a lot of the common outdoors backpacking water filters cannot handle proper chemical and heavy metal pollution. It's not good for you to be ingesting that on a regular basis if you're a frequent outdoorsman. Uh, it can cause a lot of problems, especially for women. So make sure that you're able to properly treat the water you're going to be around and know the best possible water sources before you hit the trail. Don't just hope that you'll come across one. Now, after we talked about situation awareness, first aid, obtaining worth, and water procurement, my fifth skill that I think is incredibly important is one that not a lot of people talk about, but it's the one that usually impacts people the most, and that is being able to sleep outdoors. And it's usually two polar issues. Either it's too quiet, and then every little bump in the night, every little animal or owl hoot scares the crap out of you, and so that keeps you awake, or it's the opposite. You're in an area where there's a lot of campers. Even back in trails in certain state parks, they'll have camping setups where you'll be a stone's throw away from someone else, even if it's way down the trail, away from civilization. Uh, so you'll have to deal with loud neighbors and things like that, and then you can't sleep. You need to be able to sleep in total silence and deal with those bumps at night, and you need to be able to deal with noisy neighbors. You're going to get both when you're in the outdoors. I know veteran campers that still can't sleep well in the outdoors, uh, and so they, they medicate to do that, and you really shouldn't do that. You should really just get used to it. And the best way to, to work on this is practice. You just go out in your yard some nights. Go on, outside on the weekend. Uh, no matter whether you live next to a busy highway or you live out in the fields, uh, you just go outside and start trying to sleep outside, get used to the noises of the area, and then occasionally do overnighters where you plan to do a long trip. Don't just go straight into that long trip. Do overnighters here and there if you can afford to, or at least at similar local areas. Get used to that quiet and the owl noises and the little animals scurrying around. Be used to fellow campers screaming and yelling, being drunk idiots. You got to be used to both. Getting a good night's sleep is super important in the outdoors. You need to be waking up full of energy, well-rested, cognitive. You need to be able to, to move around. If you aren't thinking straight, you might slip on a rock, fall, hurt yourself. You might make dumb decisions and go somewhere you're not supposed to just because you're so tired you aren't paying attention. So sleep is really important, something I don't think is talked about enough in outdoor circles. And that's why I count that as my fifth most important skill. And you really should prioritize these in order. Situational awareness can get you out of most issues. First aid is the most immediate thing that can kill you. Then warmth, then water, then sleeping outdoors. You don't see food procurement in here because really for a 72-hour situation, which is what most people should be preparing for, food really isn't that important. It can be a good morale booster. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's not so important that I think it needs to be one of the five most important skills an outdoorsman should have. Now, like with sleeping outdoors, all this stuff requires training. You need to train for success. It is so important to practice these things. You want to be practicing more than just once a year on the family camping trip. You need to be doing this very regularly. Keep your first aid certificates up to date. Make sure you're practicing at least once a quarter, in my opinion, and understanding how to use your first aid equipment, how to use your fire equipment, making sure everything is properly functioning. Make sure that your shelter kit is well prepared. Make sure there's no mold or damage done to it. Make sure everything is in order and practice these skills as much as you can uh, and make sure you're ready to go. Don't just rely on, oh, well, I did this last year. I can probably remember how to do it because again, that's how people make mistakes and you're not being properly prepared. It, just a little bit of training can go a very long way. Now, on top of that training, 
there's usually the saying, the better trained you are with your skills, the less kit you need to bring. And for the most part, I generally agree with this, but there's some minimal kit ideas that I firmly disagree with. And one of those is very popular, something that all of you guys are going to have running across when building your first kit to go into the outdoors. And that's the 10 C's of survivability. This is attributed to Dave Canterbury, even though all he did was just take common sense stuff from previous people and put it into a nice little list. The 10 C's of survivability does not cut it. It is not good enough for outdoor survival. Calling it a survivability list is totally irresponsible in my opinion. Now, if you don't know the 10 C's of survivability, you've been under rock, here's what the 10 C's are. Cutting tool, combustion device, cover, container, Cordage, con bandanas, ironic coming from the guy that says con kills. We will talk about that in the future. Cargo tape, compass, cloth sail needle, kind of useless in my opinion. And then candling device, aka light. So a flashlight, candles, things like that. The big issue I have with the 10 C's of survivability, it's leaving out one big C, and that's care. There's no room for first aid. So if everyone just adheres to the 10 C's of survivability and that's all they bring and they're all proud of themselves for having that and that being the basis of their kit, where's the first aid kit? You need to have some sort of first aid with you if you're going to be anywhere near in the woods, if you're going to be serious as an outdoorsman. First aid, aka care, should be the first thing on this list and it's not on there at all, but he has a cloth sail needle because, oh, you need to sew things to be better. Well, if you get a hemorrhage, that sail needle isn't going to do a whole heck of a lot. You need to, to not follow these cookie cutter simplified lists. Being in the outdoors is not simple. You need to have skills. You need to have the proper equipment. You need to take things seriously. The 10 C's of survivability, you will not survive any sort of long-term situation if that's all you have with you. Calling it the survivability thing is just so dumb to me. And a lot of other people agree with this. And thankfully, it's starting to fade out a little bit. But unfortunately, a lot of these TV personalities and YouTube personalities still have a big influence on beginner outdoors folks. Uh, so make sure, like I'll say many times across the lifespan of this podcast, be very careful where you're getting your outdoors information from. There are so many people on TV and on YouTube pretending to be survival experts that have literally no experience at all or minimal experience doing anything in the outdoors. You don't want to trust them when it comes to your safety. Take what you need, think about where you're going, be prepared for everything. Don't just follow these cookie cutter lists. Your gear list should match you, your area, the weather in your area, the seasonal variances. It should be very specific to you. Never use cookie cutter lists. I will never give you a generic gear list and say, this is the end all be all. Just don't do it. It's very irresponsible for a teacher, an educator, uh, or a supposed expert to give you a cookie cutter list and say, yep, this is the survival gear you need. It's irresponsible and it's wrong. Now, what I choose to say is my double D method. This is what I call it. You might call it something else. This is by no means something unique to me. It's just what I call it. You obviously need to be prepared for where you are and the weather and seasonal variations of that area. And when it comes to the gear you need to choose, go with the double Ds, distance and duration. How far you're going to be from civilization really determines what you're going to bring. If you're just going to be on a trail with houses around you for most of the way, you don't need to bring a full 72-hour kit really with you. You don't need to bring a 72-liter bag or a 75-liter bag with you full of junk. You just don't because you're not that far away from help if anything goes wrong. Uh, so distance really determines what you bring. 
if you're going to be really far into the woods, you need to bring probably everything in the kitchen sink. If you're going out on that one week hunting trip and you're going to make your own shelter and all that stuff, you need to bring a lot with you. But if you're just a, a quick trail hiker in areas that are very well populated, you don't need all of that stuff. Next with the second D, duration, that determines how much you bring. So how far away you are determines whether you bring a bunch of food and water and all that stuff. But duration is, you know, do I bring just a snack bar or do I bring full meals? Do I bring multiple full meals? Do I bring redundancies? Duration really determines how much you bring, whereas distance determines what you bring given your location and the weather and seasonal variances. This is not a strict philosophy of here's these items because it really needs to be tailored to you and this is the best most responsible way to do it look at where you're going to be what it's going to be like out how the weather can change based on that season and then think how far am i away am i going to be from help and how long am i going to be away from potential help and that'll really help you guide yourself into building a kit that's tailored to you i really want to harp on this that being prepared in the outdoors means your kit is tailored to you, your skills, your situation. Never just go based off a cookie cutter list on the internet. It is very responsible people to provide these as supposed experts. And it's not good for you to do that because there might be a bunch of junk you don't need, or there might be a bunch of stuff that you need that isn't in there. And that's the worst case scenario. What you might carry down in Texas during this current season in January when this is recorded, and up here in New York with our winter, our kits are going to be totally different. So me telling you what my kit is right now is not going to make any sense for someone in, in a warmer climate. So it needs to be very tailored to you. Now, lastly, I want to talk about what you bring with you in terms of nutrition. Nutrition is important. You want to make sure you're prioritizing fats with your foods. If you bring food, then protein. And then you do want some quick sugars, but you want the food you're bringing to be all sugar. You know, a candy bar, yeah, that's cool, but you don't want your main meal to be just pure sugary nonsense. You want to make sure the bulk of your, your calories are coming from fats and protein. And then you want some like little bits of candy, little bits of just sugar for that quick energy. Uh, those are probably the things that are most important in my opinion. You don't need to bring a multivitamin. You're not going to be out there that long, but your body is going to burn fat first and foremost in severe cold and in other situations where you're expending a lot of energy. And then after you burn your fat, you're going to be burning your protein. So you need to make sure your, your fat is your number one priority, then your protein, and then that quick sugar to give you a nice little boost, keep you on your toes once in a while. And it's a good morale booster as well. A lot of times that your psychological state determines everything about how you handle a disaster. If you're not with it, a simple problem can really become a big problem. So having a little bit of something to, to get you happy or at least energized is very important. Bring your favorite candy bar or something like that. Now, I think the most important tool, um, finishing off gear here, is going to be the emergency beacon. Now, I personally don't have one because I don't need it. I don't go that far into the woods. But for those of you guys that are really going to go out there for a long time or be really out in the boonies, an emergency satellite beacon is invaluable. You're going to need to buy the device, maintain the device, pay for the subscription fee since most of them have subscription fees, but it is one of the most surefire ways to get help when you're way, way out there. Essentially, it sends sometimes a text-style message along with your GPS coordinates. It's not foolproof. There are obviously areas, mountainous areas, where GPS don't always work well, especially in certain valley regions. Uh, you need to understand the limitations of the device, but it's one of the best ways to get emergency help because you got to remember, when you're way out there, it's not a simple 911 call away. 
Uh, it's going to take a very long time in some of these places, even hours for emergency vehicles to get prepped, approved, and get out to where you are. Even helicopters can be very difficult in certain situations. They can't land everywhere. They can't fly in all conditions. So having that emergency beacon for the you folks that are going to be really, really out there or out for a very long time is very important. I think it's worth, worth the investment for you guys, really, uh, for that. Now, one other thing before we go that a lot of people bring up in terms of being prepared in the outdoors. I don't really count this as part of the gear because it's something that's very specialized and legally managed. And that is self-defense on the trail. There's been a lot of interest in this, especially on the Appalachian Trail, given certain criminal issues that have gone on. And a lot of people are worried about the dangers of being on the trail without something like, say, a pistol. Well, you need to understand there's a lot of laws that go into self-defense. You need to understand what counts as self-defense for your area. Make sure that you're following the laws with that. And you need to understand, like with the Appalachian Trail, you cannot bring a pistol with you the full length of the trail. You cannot through hike the Appalachian Trail legally with a pistol. There's at least four or five states, one of which being my home state of New York, that only accept pistol permits from that state. So New York only accepts pistol permits from New York. And the people that 9.9 times out of 10 that get those pistol permits in New York have to be residents of New York. So you are not going to be able to through hike the Appalachian Trail legally with, with a pistol permit. And because the Appalachian Trail is so popular, so heavily traveled, there is a good chance you'll eventually run across law enforcement that will say, hey, what you got there? And then if you don't have a pistol permit for the state you're in, you're going to be in deep trouble. And it's not just a little slap on the hand or fine. They can seize your firearm, and in some places, criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree or third degree. You're talking fines, jail time potentially. It's a very serious thing. So be reasonable with your self-defense. It is something worth considering. I don't want to educate you on that because I don't feel it's appropriate for me to do that. You really need to do your own due diligence with that. Go learn from experts in self-defense, which I am not. Again, Make sure you're being careful where you're getting your information from. Don't just take everything you see on the internet and go, oh, well, that's just how it is. Make sure you're going through credible channels. You're really verifying everything people say, including me. Verify everything I say because I might misspoke uh, like I just did there. Um, I, I might uh, not elaborate things clearly. I might say something that's just outright wrong. I got my information from somewhere that wasn't good and then I passed on bad information. You never know who's behind the mic or who's behind the camera all the time. There's a lot of well-respected people in the outdoors community that turned out to be not so respect-worthy. So just be very, very careful and take your advice, especially self-defense advice, from someone who knows what they're talking about. And heck, I'd even go as far as if you're going to be someone who's regularly in the outdoors crossing state lines, talk to a lawyer. I, I think that would be really, really valuable time and money well spent to make sure you're following the laws for cross-state trails. Uh, so with that said, we're pretty much done with today's episode. Next time, we're going to be talking about one of the biggest cliches in the outdoors preparedness and survival arena, and that is drinking your own urine. Uh, this is something that was perpetuated by dual survival, by Bear Grylls, and it, there's a lot of problems with this. And I want to talk about general dehydration and specifically why you do not want to drink your own urine in the next episode. So with that said, be safe, guys, and most importantly, keep it wild.